Morning, everyone. You may be seated. I'm going to be filling in today. Pastor Ben, he's on his sabbatical, so if you are, um, is that for me doing something? It's not, okay. So if you're visiting for the first time, you guys are stuck with me today. Um, if you're not visiting, you're still stuck with me, so sorry about your luck. Uh, is what it is. Uh, no, we'll get through it together, uh, along with the Lord's uh, leadership. So in 2006, if you guys remember, there was a story of this British climber. His name was David Sharp. He attempted to climb Mount Everest. It would have been his third attempt at climbing Mount Everest. He was an experienced man. He had made a number of different climbs before, but this was going to be the time. This was the time that he thought, hey, I'm making it all the way to the top. They say with Mount Everest, once you make it to uh, the elevation of 26,000 feet, you're past the point of rescue. It's just there's a lot of stuff to mobilize 26,000 feet. You start getting into the point of where your body's just, it's not getting the oxygen that it needs. Your body's just kind of fighting against yourself. So 26,000 feet, you're pretty much, you're pretty much on your own if something uh, bad happens to you. Well, he ended up making it to the elevation of 28,000 feet. And he took shelter. It's called the Cave of Green Boots. Now, Green Boots, he's this former climber who, uh, who died there. I don't necessarily know if Green Boots made it to the top or the top, but he made it to this mark of this 28,000 feet, sat down. He ended up freezing to death and dying. So that's where, that's where David Sharp ended up uh, calling it quits and taking shelter for the nights was in this cave. Well, as of 2021, there have been over 300 people who have died while attempting to climb Mount Everest. And it got me thinking, how many of the bodies are left there? Because if Green Boots is there, how many else are left there? There's about 215 dead climbers who are left just along the way to the top of Mount Everest. And the interesting thing is it takes roughly six to eight men to retrieve one of the dead bodies. And it's a lot of work. You, you think of just, just the ice and the snow alone, you're doubling the weight of a body. So it poses more of a risk to be bringing those bodies down off the mountain than it does just to leave it there. So with David Sharp, they're a little unsure if he made it to the top. Um, he was told by his, his guides that he should have taken extra oxygen with him, but he, he decided to save a little bit of money, so he went on an unguided tour. So it was, it was up to him whatever he wanted to do. He didn't bring that extra oxygen with him. He ended up making it to that cave of green boots, and that's where he sat, and he literally froze to death. It took about a couple days. Um, as tragic and as terrible as that is, it, it seems like, you know, this, this is this guy's third time. This is something he's wanted to do. He's, he's tried two other attempts to make it to the top. Didn't quite make it. Here we are, time number three. The guy's experienced. He knows what's going on. The story really just kind of gets a little worse from there. Um, there's been reports and still a number, number of different reports that there are anywhere from 34 to 40 other climbers who walked by David while he was sitting in that cave and witnessed that he was freezing to death. There's one group that said they were, they were walking by him. They saw David sitting in the cave, and they look at him, you know, hey, David, come on, get up, get moving, let's go. You know, you got to get outside. You can't just sit there. You're going to die. They say that David didn't move. Okay, that's fine. We're going to make our way to the top. There was another group that came by, said pretty much the same thing. They said that they saw David, told him the exact same thing. Look, guy, you need to get up. You need to get moving around. And he just waved him off. So they thought, okay, the guy knows what he's doing. There was another group that came by and said that they saw David sitting in there, and they go, David, got to get up. Let's go. Let's get moving. He didn't move, didn't do anything. They shone a light in his eyes, and they said that they saw that the life was draining from him there. So he was, he was sitting there. He was literally uh, freezing to death. 
but the weird thing is, again, is there's those 250 dead climbers here along the way. So it's not terribly uncommon for the climbers to see a dead body. I was reading, reading a story. Um, a guy was talking about his expedition while he was climbing Mount Everest. He said he sat down kind of on a ledge to take a, take a rest for him. And the guy told him, hey, we're not alone. He looked down. He was sitting on the body of a dead climber, a frozen body. So it's, it's not uncommon. It's just kind of one of those one of those things you eventually start getting used to. And we think with Mount Everest, you know, we think of just the beautiful scenery that's at the top of it, right? You know, you can see for absolute miles. You can see other snow peaks. You can see just just all the deep snow. And I mean, yeah, it seems cold up there, but I like the cold. Um, but you know, there's just all that scenery, just such a lovely place. But we never really hear about the bodies that are passed along the way. And again, we think about David here, the, the number of people, the 34 to 40 people who walk by, and we think, that's just terrible. How, how could you walk by an individual sitting in this, in this situation? It's not like an ambulance was going to be driving by the only form of help or those climbers who were there. We think that's, just, that's a really terrible story. You stand by and you witness someone who's just literally freezing to death. It took about two days for him to, to completely uh, uh, freeze to death. And we think that's just that's a horrible thing. But I think the reality is that Christian life tends to kind of be the, be the same way. You think about it, we're walking by people who are dying every single day. They're physically not dead, but spiritually they are. means that these are the unsaved individual. These are the people who just haven't repented and turned to Christ. I think a lot of times we really don't think a whole lot about it, right? Like we go to the grocery store, we go to the gas station. Um, our kids have sporting events. We go to their sporting events with them. We go to work. Even some of us have family members, family functions um, who are unsaved. And a lot of times we just don't really concern ourselves with their spiritual condition. We're kind of like those climbers who just continue to walk right by David. We're a little more concerned with ourselves getting to the top than we are of taking others there uh, with us. <clears throat> so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13. If you would go ahead and uh, uh, turn there. I want to spend time today talking about the command that Christ gave us to be salt and light. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 is where we're going to be. I'll give you a second to turn there. It's also a second for me to organize my notes too, so a little, little insider secrets. Um, but so Matthew chapter 5, verses 13, like I said, verse 13 is where we're going to start. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, uh, most of us have been around church. We, we kind of have the idea of what Christ is talking about with the salt and light. I remember as a kid, I would kind of laugh every time I heard that this story come up because I just imagine a bunch of Christians laying on the table just waiting for somebody to you know, grab a hold of them and toss them on their food. But obviously, that's not what Christ is talking about. Christ literally does not mean that we are salt. The word salt is a metaphor. Uh, it's it's uh, a metaphor for we think about um, you know the principles of salt. What does salt do? Salt adds flavor to food. It also brings out the flavor in food. That's kind of what we do, right? The world's just kind of a dark, boring place. We can interject Christ into certain situations or all situations. Um, we can add that flavor with hope that is in Christ. Back in those times when 
uh, Christ was addressing this, this Sermon on the Mount, um, salt had a lot of value to it. There's that whole uh, phrase that somebody's not worth their salt. That generated from around that time. That's how people, people were paid. So, you know, the guy wasn't worth the money that was being spent on them. But there's value. And we as Christians, we have value. The Bible says that um, we call God Father. He calls us His sons and daughters. So we have that value to God. Another thing about salt is that salt heals. They say if you have just a minor cut or a minor scrape or something, if you make a little bit of, bit of salt water, you can put that, that wounded area uh, inside that salt water, and it'll actually, it'll actually start healing, and it'll also help killing or kill the bacteria uh, from that. And same thing as us, right? We're Christians. We are offering that hope to uh, uh, the sick and dying world. Another thing about salt is salt uh, keeps things from decaying. Right, like it's it's used as a preserving agent. We think about that. Hey, the world's decaying around us, right? We can keep it from decaying by offering the hope that is found in Jesus. Another thing about salt: you start getting too much of it. What's it do? It begins to create thirst. Hey, same thing with us. We should do the same thing with our lives and our words. We should create thirst for Christ. We should create thirst for other people around us to have that desire for Christ. So we need to make them want to hear about Christ. So Christ used salt, that word salt, um, that idea of thought, he, salt, he used that as a, uh, a way to paint a picture as to how Christians should act. There in verses 14 and 16, he talks about uh, us being the light of the world, okay? So as Christians, we are the light of the world. We are supposed to be providing that light to the world. When we think about the world's dark, it's full of sin, there's really not a whole lot of hope. Right? We think about the unsaved mentality of uh, you're born, you live a little while, you maximize your life, you have the most fun you possibly can, and then you die, and boom, that's it. Like, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty hopeless. But as Christians, we shine that light on saying, no, 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 there's, there's a lot more to it than that. This isn't just about you know, being born, living, dying, boom, you're done. There's a lot more to it than that. So Christ is showing through our actions and through our words. And then Christ says in there, it doesn't do any good to suppress it. Like, you know, imagine all the lights go out in here, and I, don't worry guys, I have everything taken care of, and I light a candle and put it under a basket. Like, you guys are going to laugh at me and probably call me names that, rightfully so, I deserve to be called, because, I mean, that's just senseless. Why would you do something like that? That's what Christ is saying. Like, don't, we don't do that. What do we do? Lights go out, I light a candle, best thing we do is we stick it up on a lampstand, Right? Like, that's us. That's how we need to be. We need to be bold as Christians. We don't need to be hiding behind anything. The world may not necessarily be a, a terribly fond of Christians right now. Okay, that's fine. You know, we, we still have a goal. We still have a mission that we need to be going out. So, we kind of understand what Christ is talking about when it comes to salt and light. But what I want to do is I want to focus on just one word of it here. So, if you would, look with me to the first part of 13. Uh, Christ says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse number 14, it says, you are the light of the world. So that brings me to my first point. Christ said, you are salt and light. Okay, this isn't one of those things where this is just a suggestion. This isn't one of those nice phrases that, that Christ was trying to give us. Um, you know, he wasn't just trying to give us a word of encouragement. No, this is what Christ intended us to be. Like there's just there's no other way around it. He gives us this identity, and this is a command that is directly from Christ on how we should act. So this is our task. This is what we need to do, and this is also what we need to be. 
So our task is that we need to be salt and light. So when Christ said, hey, we are salt, what he meant by that was we need to be adding Christ to a bland world. Okay, the world is a giant mess right now. The world has been messed for, been a mess for years. We have the solution. As Christians, we have the solution. We have value to God. Okay, God draws us to himself for a certain reason. And that was the message that Christ was giving Israel. And you think about during this time of Christ giving this sermon on the mount, He's looking at Israel, and he's telling Israel, look, guys, quit sitting around, quit holding this, this salt, this light, quit holding this into yourself, get out and go. You need to go, you need to be salt and light. As salt, we provide the healing to the world. So it's the sick and dying world again. We have the cure for this. The Bible talks about the wages of sin is death, okay? So what you have earned for yourself because of your sin um, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We have that cure. This is how we can overcome that sin. You earn death for yourself, but God has given you eternal life if you believe in Him. Then Christ goes on and Christ says, we need to be light. We don't suppress the light. If we're suppressing the light of Christ that's in us, we're canceling the work of Saul. But then also, don't hide it under a basket. Go out, be bold as a Christian. We're a Christian, we wear that badge with pride. So Christ says, we are salt and we are light. And this is a task that we need to be filling. So we think about this. Imagine I get done, get done preaching, and um, we're just imagining. I'm not saying we're done. Um, I saw, saw a bunch of people get excited. Uh, no. But so Eldon comes up here and he's like, okay, guys, what I need you to do is, is rearrange the chairs. Okay, get the, get the chairs out here. Oh, okay, whatever, that's fine. And a few smart alecks of us say, and I included myself in the smart aleck part, um, we say, that's fine, Eldon, we're going to go ahead and we're going to put all the chairs in the women's restroom. So we take our time and we shove all the chairs in the women's restroom. It looks beautiful. We did an excellent job, packed everything, used all the space we possibly could. We get done, we say, all right, Eldon, we're done. Eldon comes up here and he goes, okay, good. Now get them set out so we can play musical chairs. Like, Eldon, come on. Like, we shoved everything in the women's restroom. We did so much work for this, but it all could have been avoided if Eldon would have told us why, right? We wouldn't have had to do all that work. And a lot of times we start, start looking at the Bible, we kind of read the Bible as to, okay, the Bible tells us to do something, we just need to do it. But the interesting thing about the Bible here is that Christ tells us that we need to be salt and light. The Bible also gives us the why we need to be salt and light. So to answer the question, why we need to be salt and light, it isn't just because the Bible tells us to do it. Okay, there's a lot more to it than that. We think about this time again. Christ was sitting and addressing Israel during this sermon on the mount. What was Israel doing at the time? They were doing just that with the law. Hey, the law says we need to do this, so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to hold to the law. We're going to do the best we possibly can to hold to the law. Great, fantastic. Well, Christ comes in. And through this address here, he goes, no, 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 that's, that's not what this is. Like, it's, it's not just actions that Christ is looking, uh, looking for in us. He's looking for the desire of our hearts to be following after him, to have this desire to be following his commands. That's what Christ is wanting. And that's what Christ was telling Israel, look, this is what you need to be doing as well. So the first reason I have to be salt and light is simply for evangelism reasons. Okay, we need to be showing Christ to a sick and dying world. Romans ten fourteen, Paul says, How then shall they call on him in who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So these are all questions that Paul is, Paul is asking, um, asking the reader here. He's saying, look, how can the unsafe people 
call on Christ if they don't believe? Uh, how can they believe because they haven't heard? But how can they hear without a preacher? And folks, that is us, okay? When it comes to us being the salt and light, we are that preacher in that situation there. We are the ones who need to be reaching the others who are around us. Our goal is to be guiding people to the cross. So I believe that the main goal here of us being salt and light is strictly for evangelism. We need to be showing Christ to a dying world. So when Christ says that we need to be salt and light, we need to remember this. This is for evangelism. The second reason here is that it shows obedience to Christ. And you go through and you look, look through the Gospels. Um, you know, Mark 16 specifically says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel uh, to the nations. So this is a fulfillment of the great commission. Reality is salt is worth absolutely nothing if it's kept in the shaker, right? Like what, what, good, does, what good does it do? Yeah, it's in the shaker. We have something that enhances. Same thing goes for us. It doesn't do any good to keep Christ inside of here. There's a lot of churches who are completely comfortable keeping Christ inside of this church, inside of the building. There's the old saying that, um, you know, for years uh, the, the church spent time keeping the world out of it, but now it seems that the, that the church is, is trying to keep the world out. I think I completely messed that up. Um, but that wasn't in my notes. But I completely messed that up. But either way, so what I'm saying is, <laughs> we get on professional now, sorry. So what I'm saying is, we spend a lot of time just trying to keep the, the church inside of here. We're not going out. We're not witnessing. We're not doing what we need to do. And I get it, it feels a little weird. But it doesn't do any good to be the salt and light to stay inside of the shaker. Israel did that. And again, Christ was addressing this. Christ was saying, no, you're done sitting around. You're done just reaping the benefits of God for yourself. You're getting out. You need to be going. You need to be salt and light um, in those situations. I think the third reason that we have to be salt and light is reality is we have a moral obligation to it. So imagine you wake up, you look outside your window, and you see your neighbor's house is on fire. Beautiful two-story house. You know, the family's upstairs in the second story, and they're sleeping. You can see smoke billowing out of the, the bottom floor, and you look and you say, okay, well, I guess I have a couple options here. One, I could call the fire department. Give them about 15, 20 minutes, fire department will probably be out here. I'll sit on my front porch, and I'll watch them put the fire out. Seems great. Or we have that moral obligation. I know I only have a couple minutes before... Uh, the flames completely engulfed that family. What I'm going to do is I'm going to completely inconvenience them, knock on the door, wake them up, say, hey guys, pack your stuff, get out of here, you're about to die. The world's on fire around us. Like that's, that's how this is. The world is completely burning. We have a moral obligation to tell the world that. We have the moral obligation to tell the world that, look, the wages of sin is death. The wages of your sin is death. And the fourth reason I have, it shows love to people. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So use your imagination again. Imagine that uh, a, a close friend or, or family member, member of yours, someone that you absolutely love, uh, comes walking up to you and says, Hey, I'm driving to Cleveland. Give me the best possible route there. Immediately we think, okay, there's two routes that we could be taking to Cleveland. One's extremely safe, nice, comfortable route, straight, just absolute idea when you think of a, how a road should be, that's the road right there. There's also one that is pretty dangerous. And in fact, you keep driving, all of a sudden the road, di road disappears, you go careening off of it, off of a cliff, boom, you're done. 
We're going to warn them about both of those roads, right? We're not just going to say, yeah, there's, there's one road, you just take that road, you're going to stay on it. No, we're going to be giving them warning signs saying, hey, look, you take the safe route, but what's happening along the way is you need to look out for the stuff that leads you down this dangerous road. Because we don't want them ending up going off that cliff, just exploding into a fireball and being done. No, we're doing what we can to keep that from happening. We're guiding them along the way. Take the safe route, look out for all the hazards that are on the, uh, on the second route. So we're going to be, we're going to be uh, uh, loving enough to warn them that if they are not careful, they could be heading straight for destruction. So we aren't just salt and light simply just because the Bible says that we need to do it. We need to be salt and light to evangelize. Okay, We need to be showing Christ to a dying world. We also need to be doing it because we're showing obedience to Christ, because we have a moral obligation, and because it shows light. So again, Christ says we need to be salt and light. So we need to fill this task. Then we go on, okay, that's fine, understand, Christ says we need to be salt and light. This is why, how do we go about doing it? Well, I'm glad you asked. So this is where we get into our action, okay? You know, we all kind of have this little bit of selfish nature in us, right? Like, we, we show up for things if we know that we're going to be getting something out of it. This is, this is where we're all going to be getting something out of it. So the first step for us, uh, us becoming salt and light is that we need to pray. Like, we're in church, it's, it's something that we talk about. Okay, we need to be praying, uh, praying to God. We need to be asking God to convict us in areas just where we simply are not showing salt and light. And there's a number of different reasons why we don't, don't live this command. I think one of the ways, and I, I know for me personally, is that I value my time just a little too much. I can think of a number of different times where I just didn't witness to people um, simply because of my time. I remember this past Christmas, um, we were watching Christmas movies and... Uh, you know, in like the older Christmas movies, like black and white Christmas movies, they talk about popovers. And I'd never eaten a popover before. I enjoy cooking. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. So I thought, hey, I'm going to make popovers. So then I realized, start looking at popovers and, and realized I don't have any custard dishes. So I should have just seen that as the writing on the wall. I've been like, hey, I shouldn't make these things. But me and my persistence, I go, I'm getting custard cups. I get my shoes on, grab my wallet, get ready to go outside, and I open up the front door, and we have a screen door, and I see this man just mid-knock, just about ready to start knocking on my door. Oh, hey, how you doing? You know, I scared him, he kind of scared me. So he looks at me, and he's trying to sell some sort of project or product, and I don't even remember what the product was, but, um, you know, here it is Christmas time, you know, we talk about, hey, Jesus is the reason for the season, and so naturally, you know, me being the Christian man, go, hey, that's cool, I'm not interested, I need to go get custard cups, because I, I got to make popovers. You know, I missed that opportunity. I have a guy standing on my front porch Christmas time. You know, you're looking kind of for the low-hanging fruit, someone to, to present the gospel to. I completely passed it up because my time was more important than witnessing to this man. And to be honest with you, I don't like popovers. Um, I made them, and they were absolutely disgusting. Like, I, I wish that the story could have been a little better of, um, you know, I, I took the opportunity to not witness to this man, but I made these popovers. They were absolutely amazing. I can't. Like either I'm horrible at cooking or popovers just aren't good. Um, and I know what I'm doing when it comes to the kitchen. So, um, like I said, there's a number of, different, number of different reasons as to why we just, we aren't sharing the gospel how we need to. And when you think about that, for me, my time turns into an idol, okay? I'm valuing my time over sharing the gospel 
and spreading the gospel in people. So this is a question that I have for you, and this is something I kind of want you to reflect on during this week, is what are you putting in place of your service to God? So what are you valuing more than serving God? And whatever it is, again, spend time thinking about this, spend time praying about it and confessing it, whatever it is, it's an idol, and that's something that needs to go. This is keeping you from serving God. This is the severity of what we're dealing with here. Like I said, spend time this week praying about it, Ask God to reveal those idols to you and repent of them. Uh, for some of you, um, you say, okay, you know, I'd like, to be, I'd like to be the salt and light. I'd like to get out and just start evangelizing to some people. Um, but you say, you know, I don't necessarily know how, how to go about doing it, or I'm just not good at conversations, um, starting conversations, keeping them going. Um, and for you, I would say that those would be an area of weakness, okay? And that's where 2 Corinthians twelve nineteen comes into place where it says that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Folks, I, I don't look at this as a, as a bad thing, okay? This is an area in our life where God's strength will come through for us. You know, it really does take some courage and it takes some boldness uh, to confront people about salvation. And for some of us, and I include myself in this group, it's kind of hard to start a conversation. Most of you have probably talked with me, and you're thinking, yeah, you know, I, I get it. Um, you know, they are hard to talk to. But, um, you know, it's difficult, okay? It's difficult for some of us, but that's where we need to realize that God's going to step in. God's going to uh, help us through this. This is where God's strength really comes in. But I would say if you're one of those people in those latter groups where it's kind of difficult for you to be having a conversation, the, the thought of just uh, a talking with a stranger and how you get the, get the ball rolling downfield, um, you know, towards a gospel conversation, I encourage you to pray, like I already said. Um, but also have a plan. Like have, have some sort of a message that you're planning on saying. I was, uh, I was watching this interview by, by John MacArthur and um, he said he had this interview one time, and he was sent this giant list of questions. Um, and he didn't really read through the questions because he said his intentions was he wasn't going to answer a single one of them. He said the whole goal of this interview was that he was going to be talking about the supremacy of Christ. So whatever question was thrown his way, he said he was just going to guide it back to how supreme Christ was. So have some sort of a plan, have some sort of a message that you're going to be con uh, conveying. Then there's really no, another way that, that I know of outside of praying and having a message, um, you know, just to combat this area of weakness. Just learn some witnessing plans, learn some sort of witnessing tactics. For me, that kind of, that really has helped embolden me. Um, I read this book, it's called Tactics by Greg, Greg Kokel. Has anyone ever read that before? No one? Okay, well... To encourage you guys, it's a really good book. I read it and I understand it, so you guys ought to be able to have it memorized um, in the amount of time it took me to read through it. Really interesting book, though. Um, the interesting thing about it was that he lays out this plan of, you know, you're not necessarily having to um, confront someone and say, hey, you know, let me show you the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. Like, we're not having to do that. All we're doing is just having a conversation with people. You know, you get the ball rolling, you're having a conversation. I've done it a number of different times. I was standing at Home Depot there a few weeks ago and had a conversation. Conversation with a guy, and that's all it is. But through your, your conversation with individuals, you're kind of guiding them towards Christ, kind of guiding them towards towards the cross. I was talking with a woman there a couple weeks ago. Not patting myself on the back, but um, we were standing in Kroger and, uh, and waiting. Where were we waiting? Oh, we were at the pharmacy. 
And, um, you know, she kind of brings up all the, the prices, how slow everything is, how bad the economy is, pharmacy takes so long, um, you know, there's just not enough workers, not enough employees around here and what have you. And then she says, you know, the world is just a giant mess. And I thought, aha, you walked right into it, lady. <laughs> you know, so we, we, started, we started walking, um, you know, walking down the road towards, you know, there we are standing there in, uh, in Kroger having a, a conversation about Christ. So it's, it's really a lot of fun. A um, couple other different ways. There's, there's one, it's called three circles. You draw, draw a bunch of circles and you're laying out the plan of salvation. I don't really use that because I have issues drawing a straight line with a straight edge. So circles kind of uh, annihilate me. Um, there's also kind of the way of the master plan, um, you know, to where you're using the law to expose sin. And I, I encourage you, like, if you guys are struggling with evangelizing to people, let me know. Come ask me. Come talk to Eldon. We can help you get guided, guided along the way, and we can give you a number of different tools to kind of help get that ball, ball rolling. So the first step to being salt and light is we need to be praying. The second step of how we can be the salt and light is we need to be pattering our lives around Christ. Okay, so following God is more than just a Sunday morning event. Okay, we have a relationship with God. We think about the relationship that we have with our spouse. Imagine if my wife, Julie, imagine if I just started talking to her just two hours a week. Now, I know she's getting kind of excited thinking about like ways that that would be absolutely fantastic. But the reality is our marriage, it, you know, it just it wouldn't end up well. But we do the same thing with God. We show up to church. We say, here you go, God, I'm going to give you uh, two hours out of my day. Um, but then that's it. You know, and that's that's just where it kind of ends. It's really not a relationship. Um, that's kind of an abuse of powers that you have going on there. Um, think of uh, just all the work that it takes and apply the exact same thinking to your relationship with God. You know, when we, when we get to meet someone new or we think of our spouse, you, what do we do with them? We start taking time getting to know them. We talk to them. We listen to them. We involve them in our lives. Do the exact same thing with God, okay? Pray to God so we're talking to Him. Listen to Him. We're listening to Him through, uh, through prayer and through the Bible. Involve Him in your life. Don't just look at God as, as the genie that's going to bail you out of bad situations. Um, don't just turn to Him when things are going poorly. Involve Him in your life. Be praying, praying with God, investing, investing your relationship in Him through the good and the bad. So if you pattern your life around Christ, you have to know what He says. You have to know what He commands, and the only way that that's going to happen is you're going to have to be uh, studying the Bible, and you're going to have to be praying. And then my last point here is that you cannot be salt and light if you are not in Christ. Okay? So being salt and light here, when Christ gives us the command that we need to be salt and light, that only applies to the individuals who, who are saved. That only applies to the individuals who have put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you can't be salt and light. You know, you can't be that salt that you're supposed to be. You can't be bringing that flavor of Christ to the world because you don't even have it in you. You, you can't be light because you currently are living in darkness. It's one of those things where you need to repent and you need to be putting your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 talks about, it says, the wages of sin is death. So a wage is something that you have earned for yourself. You have earned death because of your sin. 
In just four of the Ten Commandments, you can look, okay, if you've ever told uh, a lie, you are now a liar. You have earned yourself death. You earned yourself uh, death also by stealing, by taking things that are not yours, whether that applies to objects or that even applies to company times and company things. You've done that. You are a thief. The Bible says you shall not steal. You have earned death for yourself because of that. The Bible talks about... Um, if you commit adultery, adultery is wrong. Jesus goes on to say, yeah, but if you even so much as look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery, okay? So now it's, we no longer have to be married. It's if I have lustful thoughts in my head. By doing that, you're committing adultery. That sin has caused you death. Uh, you think about idolatry, okay? You're putting things in the place of God. The Bible says, don't do that. You shall have no other idols before God. If you do that, you have earned for yourself death. The wages of sin is death. So if you've done one of those things, by your own admission, you do deserve death. Um, you do deserve hell because you have sinned. And the Bible says that the punishment of sin is death. What you have earned for yourself is death. So if we would stand and come to the music... I ask that everyone bow their head and close their eyes. Uh, Romans 6.23, uh, you know, while it is cutting and it talks about the wages of sin being death, it does give us good news here is that the gift of God is eternal life uh, through Jesus Christ your Lord. Uh, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be safe. So that's good news there. Um, we've We've looked at um, the severity of our sin and understand that, you know, we, we look at lying and we say, I was just a lie, it was nothing much. God goes, no, it's, it's, it's more than that. Like, it's more than just a little lie. It's, it's more than you just getting a little angry about certain things. It's more than you just sneaking a peek at a woman. It's more to it than that. It's more than you just, just taking something of, of that I want. It's more to it than that. All those things are sin and all of those deserve death. And the reality is, the only way for you to be safe from the punishment that you have earned from yourself because of your sins is to confess and to believe in Christ. Um, I, I, don't, I don't try to, to sound mean or angry. If I am, I, I definitely do apologize um, for it. I'm not, not trying to be mean, not trying to beat anyone up. The reality is, is we need to be the salt and light. Like the world, the world needs us. The world doesn't need us just cowering here in the church or, or keeping all of the joy and keeping all of the hope to ourselves, realizing, ha ha, I'm good. You're not. I'm going to heaven. You're not. That's not how it needs to be. Like we need to be going out. We need to be sharing with Christ. And it's something that we need to be putting at the list at the top of our priorities. There's no more sitting around. Like we're past that point. We need to be getting out. So if you would, bow your heads and let's pray. God, you are you are worthy of everything. You know, you're you're worthy of us giving our lives to you. We do that for our eternal life, God, but you know, it seems like a lot of times we just we just kind of stop there. Uh, you know, you are you're worth the service of our earthly life. God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Bible. God, and I, I thank you for the courage that, 
that you give us, God. You know, you, you tell us you're, you're never going to leave us. You're never going to, to forsake us. If we put our faith and our, our trust in you, God, you will guide us. You will lead us. You will take care of us, God. And I thank you so much for that. You, you know how we are here. Uh, you know the distractions that we're dealing with. Just not necessarily even bad things, God. It's just day-to-day life things, going to work, raising kids, dealing with spouses, dealing with other people. It's just, it's day-to-day stuff, God, and it's so easy for us to throw you on the back burner, but the reality is, is that, God, you don't need that. You don't deserve that. You are so much better than that, God. And I ask for forgiveness, God. Those times where where we look and say, "Oh, my time's worth more, my money's worth more than than going towards you," or or whatever the situation, whatever the ordeal is, God, I I ask that uh, that you forgive us for it. There's there's nothing that's <clears throat> that's worth what you are, God. We're talking eternal security here, God. I ask that you'll you'll convict us throughout the week, God. Uh, shine areas in our lives where we are either. Um, you know, suppressing that salt and light, God, or we're just choosing ultimately not to not be salt and light, God. God, be with us. We love you. We thank you. Amen.